Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Asking for Anything. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, July the 30th, 2017. Ask whatever you wish. It's the stuff of childhood fantasies, like waving a magic wand. But that's what happened to King Solomon, who had a dream in which God invited him to ask for whatever he wanted. 1 Kings chapter 3. It's easy to hear literary echoes of this story in Jesus' similar command to his own disciples a thousand years after Solomon. We read in John chapter 14, Ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. So, ask what you wish. What do you want? In his book, Let Your Life Speak, Parker Palmer tells a story about the time he was offered the presidency of a small educational institution. He wanted the job, and he thought that he should take it. Nevertheless, given his Quaker tradition, he assembled what's called a clearness committee of a half a dozen trusted friends. Their job was not to give him advice, but to ask honest, open-ended questions so that Palmer could discern his vocational call for himself. Halfway through this three-hour meeting, a friend asked Palmer why he wanted the job. What would he like most about being president? Palmer mentioned several things that he would not enjoy like wearing a tie, at which his friend pointed out that he was not answering the question. Palmer paused. He thought a bit, and then he gave an answer that he says appalled even me as I spoke it. Well, I said in the smallest voice I possess, I guess what I'd like most is getting my picture in the paper with the word president under it. He concludes this story. I was sitting with seasoned Quakers who knew that though my answer was laughable, my mortal soul was clearly at stake. They did not laugh at all, but went into a long and serious silence, a silence in which I could only sweat and inwardly groan. Finally, my questioner broke the silence with a question that cracked all of us up and it cracked me open. Parker, can you think of an easier way to get your picture in the newspaper? By then it was obvious, even to me, that my desire to be president had much more to do with my ego than with the ecology of my life. The clearness committee had made things clear and so Palmer withdrew his name from the search. Parker Palmer isn't alone, maybe just more honest than many of us, and maybe more in touch with his deeply divided self. His story reveals the challenge of the Solomonic invitation to ask God for whatever we want, namely, what we want reveals who we are. 
If human sin is essentially what Augustine called a heart curved in on itself, it's healthy to acknowledge how often our pious prayers are little more than selfish whims. A bigger house, a better job. In his little book, Chapters on Prayer, the 4th century Saint Evagrius the Solitary thus advised, he wrote, Pray not to this end that your own desires be fulfilled. You can be sure they do not fully accord with the will of God. Drawing upon his own experiences, Evagrius admitted what he said, quote, Often when I have prayed, I have asked for what I thought was good and persisted in my petition, stupidly importuning the will of God. But when I have obtained what I asked for, I have been very sorry because the thing turned out not to be as I had thought. As we know in this famous story of King Solomon, instead of asking for long life, great wealth, or death for his enemies, Solomon asked for a discerning heart. Even if the purpose of this story is to flatter the king, to make him look good to history, praying for a discerning heart is nonetheless wise advice. Discernment deconstructs our prayers that try to bend the world to our selfish advantage. Although it's always imperfect, at its best a discerning heart believes that God is unconditionally for you. It knows that nothing in all of creation can separate you from the love of God. The most discerning wish you can ever pray is to live in God's love and to accept his acceptance. The epistle this week from Romans 8 contains Paul's famously debated comments about God's election, foreknowledge, calling, and predestination. But instead of theological speculation about who was excluded by these mysteries, his focus is on pastoral consolation about who is included in God's love. And Paul's message is uncompromising in Romans 8.39. Nothing in all of creation can separate us from the love of God. Paul grocery lists over 20 threats to our well-being. Suffering, weakness, frustration, bondage to decay, ignorance, trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, death, life, angels, demons, powers, the present, the future, heights, depths, and, as if Paul had overlooked something, he then includes, quote, anything else in all creation, end quote. Of course, we can personalize our own lists, parents, children, the boss, employees, colleagues, bad choices, bedeviling sins, public failure, private disappointments, dark dreams, anxieties, school, a bad business deal, on it goes. But Paul is adamant, nothing can separate us from God's love. 
In the Gospel this week, from Matthew chapter 13, Jesus describes the subtleties of God's kingdom that require a discerning heart. He says that the presence of God's kingdom is like a tiny mustard seed, something insignificant rather than extravagant, fragile and not mighty, unlikely rather than obvious. His kingdom can also be imperceptible, like yeast leavening a batch of dough. It's difficult to detect unless you look carefully, pay attention. It's not apparent, even though you know it's there, somewhere. He says that God's reign is also like a fishnet containing the good and the bad together, or a field of wheat infested with weeds. And so, what do I want? I pray for a discerning heart in order to experience the ultimate reality of God's kingdom, that his perfect love is unconditional, and that nothing can separate me from his love. Everything else is penultimate. For books this week, I review a title called Hell No, The Forgotten Power of the Vietnam Peace Movement. New Haven, Yale University Press, 2017. The author is Tom Hayden. This book is 159 pages. If truth is the first casualty of war, as the U.S. Senator Hiram Warren Johnson is purported to have said back in 1918, then the second casualty of war, says Tom Hayden, is memory. When the Pentagon planned to commemorate the Vietnam War without any mention of the peace movement, Hayden decided it was time to rescue the moment, movement from social amnesia and official oblivion. And so this rambling reminiscence of a book on the battleground of memory that was published just three months after he died on October 23, 2016. Hayden admits that the peace movement of 1965 to 1975 was deeply fragmented and rarely unified, and that where mistakes were made, serious mistakes, there were petty rivalries and significant disagreements along race, class, gender, and politics. Violence betrayed its ideals in firebombing the ROTC offices, to take one example. The leaders lack political wisdom and experience. You can identify bigger marches in our own time. Nonetheless, Hayden argues that the peace movement was a huge success, despite the government's efforts to exterminate it, that helped end the war and the military draft, and underscored the nature and importance of participatory democracy, freedom of the press, and shaping public opinion. In the most interesting part of the book, the last chapter, Hayden recounts returning to Vietnam in 2007 for the first time in 32 years and trying to make sense of the many paradoxes there since the war ended, like a capitalist juggernaut economy under the rule of a communist government. 
Hayden appeals to Chuck Hagel, the former Republican senator and Vietnam War veteran, who has said that Americans today have an obligation to be honest in our telling of history. There is nothing to be gained by glossing over the dark portions of a war, the Vietnam War that bitterly divided America. We must learn from our past mistakes because that's how we avoid repeating mistakes. From the famous political activist and husband of Jane Fonda, Tom Hayden, hell no, the forgotten power of the Vietnam Peace Movement, Yale University Press. In keeping with that theme, I review a movie this week called Radical Grace from the year 2015. Back in 2012, the Vatican censored American nuns for what it called their radical feminism, placing them under the discipline of a conservative bishop. They questioned whether their lives and work were quote-unquote faithful. Why didn't they wear the habit? Instead of silencing them, though, they became a sort of cause celeb when they actively challenged the patriarchal hierarchy of Catholicism, including an appearance on The Colbert Show. This film follows three nuns in particular who were named in the controversy. Sister Simone Campbell, also an attorney, is a social justice lobbyist in Washington, D.C., the director of the Progressive Lobby Network, founded in 1971. She created a Nuns on the Bus tour to protest economic inequality and to defend the Affordable Care Act. Sister Chris Schenck worked on the inside, advocating for gender equality within the Catholic Church. And then Sister Jean Hughes had a counseling ministry among former prisoners who were trying to re-enter the community. These brave women, part of the 59,000 American nuns in 140 orders, represent a threat to the traditional Catholic past and a hope for a better future. This film originally debuted in 2015 and then got a new lease on life when it was aired on PBS in March of 2017 as a part of its series called America Reframed. I watched this film from the PBS website. Once again, the title of the film, Radical Grace. And in keeping with the dream and the prayer of King Solomon for poetry this week, we've posted a poem by Scott Cairns. It's from his book, Compass of Affection. And the title of the poem, Possible Answers to Prayer. Your petitions, though they continue to bear just the one signature, have been duly recorded. Your anxieties, despite their constant, relatively narrow scope and inadvertent attainment value, nonetheless serve to bring your person vividly to mind. Your repentance, all but obscured beneath a burgeoning yellow fog of frankly more conspicuous resentment, 
is sufficient. Your intermittent concern for the sick, the suffering, the needy poor is sometimes recognizable to me, if not to them. Your angers, your zeal, your lip-smackingly righteous indignation toward the many whose habits and sympathies offend you, these must burn away before you apprehend how near I am, with what fervor I adore precisely these, the several who rouse your passion. Scott Cairns, Possible Answers to Prayer Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for July 30, 2017. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.